the 2008 MLS Cup was secured in the Columbus Crew locker room. Champagne was flowing and spirits were high. Amid the celebrations, some electric hair clippers materialized for players to trim their playoff beards. Quickly, those clippers led to a chaotic scene, and Gino Padula made a play to secure his beautiful locks. I want to have the control. I tried to cut the hair, uh, Siggy hair, uh, but I couldn't. But I think Duncan was around. We tried to cut Jason Gary also. They tried to cut my hair, but I was so mad. They say, you touch my hair, I punch your face. I don't know what they say to them. So I was lucky because they couldn't touch my hair. Steve Sirk was in the locker room trying to make sense of that ridiculous scene. I remember Duncan running around with the clippers, trying to cut off people's hair. Uh, yeah, because guys were like trimming their beards. You know, they had their playoff beards, and then they were making uh, ridiculous, like, like you know, mustache choices, and or uh, cutting their. Hair. I think Duncan had a bald spot on his head. I can't remember who was doing the Clippers at that point, but they screwed up. I remember Duncan chasing after Gino. You know, because Gino with his long, luxurious hair, Duncan just ch Gino's like screaming and running away. You know. I'm, I'm really surprised like nobody ended up in the hospital, like running around on like this pooled champagne on the floor. And people are running around, you know, Duncan's chasing people with clippers and, uh, you know, I'm surprised nobody ended up in the hospital at some point. <laughs> Duncan actually gave the clippers to Gijay and was like trying to tell, he's like, oh no, like take some of my hair. Like he was trying to get Gijay to, to clip home in celebration. Gijay was just kind of looking at the clippers and like, then he kind of like lightly does like a little little bit of Duncan's hair. That wasn't the bald spot, but you know, that it was, it was like Gijay's participation in the crazy clipper thing. Meanwhile, another locker room ritual was introduced to the masses. I'll let Steve Sirk and Duncan Outen explain that one. After the final, I mean, you've probably heard of the famous naked cartwheel. Most hilarious thing was the, the Chad Marshall naked cartwheel, which is apparently something Chad would would do sometimes, uh, much to the delight of his teammates. It was like a, I mean, I don't know how frequently he did it. I do know that in the locker room with that game, the whole team started chanting naked cartwheel. <laughs> so, we, we, you know, obviously I get the chant going, naked cartwheel, naked cartwheel. So all the boys get it going, you know. He's kind of, no, I can't do it. And all the reporters are in there. There's tons of people in there. The champagnes are popping and, you know, well, I don't know if it was champagne. We'll call it champagne. It was bubbly and it was, it, it looked like champagne. I'm pretty sure at $5 a bottle, it's not champagne. Chad obliged. Again, on how this guy did a, a cartwheel on a floor completely wet with champagne and didn't end up in the hospital. You know, and so he starts getting a bit excited. He's just had a great game. And next thing you know, his kit's off. Just a horrible, hairy man, like, doing a cartwheel. Yeah, he did it. It was hilarious. It, 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 keep in mind, there's like 10 TV cameras in the, in the locker room, too. Even when he was done, I can't remember what network. He was like, oh, I'm glad I'm glad this is going to be on ESPN or whatever. I, I remember what network he said, but, you know. It was class. As the locker room celebration went on, Siggy Schmidt made a point to single out Duncan out. You know, when they're doing the champagne, you know, shower and everything, and, and Siggy made a point. I mean, the first guy he mentioned... Duncan got his own champagne shower. He's a guy who showed up for practice every day and battled his ass off, you know, and he made the starters work. But while many were focused on the afterglow of a championship, a few members of the crew were trying to come to terms with the reality of the situation. You know, William was at his locker and we were talking. I remember him just saying, he's like, you know, I'm having a hard time staying in the moment. 
And I'm thinking like, dude, it's your birthday. You just won MLS Cup on your birthday. Like, I remember him just telling me, he's just like, you know, I have a hard time staying in the moment. And it's because he felt that this team was so special in the way that they all got along and the way they worked together and played together and enjoyed each other's company, you know, all of it. He felt it was like a really special team and he knew it was just over. I mean, that specific group of people was not going to be together, you know, with you know so many things. And I remember Will saying that, that was kind of the thing that was on his mind while everybody was celebrating. It would be nice if Will Hesmer was wrong. The Hollywood ending of winning a championship and riding off into the sunset with a giant trophy is where the credits would usually roll if this were a movie. But in real life, things are a little more complicated. This is the end of the story of how Columbus won the cup. I remember Duncan running around with the clippers, trying to cut off people's hair. I get the chart going. Naked cartwheel. Naked cups, all the boys get it going, you know. This team, in this moment, went through two expansion drafts, which were gut punches. And I see uh, Robert Warzija, and he's in the parking garage by himself. And he's kind of pacing around and just kind of looks forlorn a little bit. And I, you know, I parked the car and, Bobby, what, what are you doing out here, man? You know, there's a party going on there. And just kind of shrugged and said, oh, no, I'm, I'm fine. He decided to kind of throw the ball up into the air and, and head it back to himself. And the photographer got a great shot of him with the ball just above his head and the, the crew logo. Episode 6, All Good Things. I'm J.D. Smith. At the end of the 2008 season, a difficult but necessary ritual had to be carried out by team executives. Hours after the crew won MLS Cup, the front office and coaching staff had to decide which players from their championship-winning team were expendable. Personnel decisions like that happen every offseason in every sport. But in certain years like 2008, those decisions had to be made before the team even finished their celebration. You see, Major League Soccer has an expansion draft. This draft allows for parity, in theory, ensuring that a new team can acquire some players from the league that will add some quality to a brand new team and make them more competitive. Each team in MLS is subject to the draft, and they have to submit a list of players they can protect from being drafted. But when you're a team that just won MLS Cup, there's no way to protect all the players that contributed to a championship season. And obviously those players are very highly sought after. So, someone who won a championship will likely be drafted by the expansion team. Further complicating matters is the timing. MLS Cup in 2008 occurred on Sunday, November 23rd. The MLS expansion draft that year was on Wednesday, November 26th. And the list of protected players had to be turned over even earlier than that. So, as had happened many times during the expansion draft era, team officials like Mark McCullers, the crew's general manager, engaged in difficult conversations with players who just helped them win a championship. As you can guess, he wasn't a fan of that process or the toll it took on his roster. This team, in this moment, went through two expansion drafts, which were gut punches, you know, to, to, to the roster that, that, that we had built. I think more about what if we didn't have those expansion drafts, what the result would have been than I think probably about anything, anything else. Almost immediately after the game, you know, we had to sit down with the Hunts. We talked the Hunts through our thoughts on you know, the expansion draft, and they said, okay, makes sense. I don't see where you have any other choice. But it was weird because Ziggy wasn't in that conversation, and he couldn't be because we didn't know where he was going to be. So that was tough, having that conversation, knowing that your head coach wasn't there 
and and wasn't going to be there. Siggy Schmid wasn't involved in those negotiations because after MLS Cup, the crew head coach didn't have a contract. During the 2008 season, the crew approached Siggy Schmid with a new contract offer. By all accounts, the initial offer made by the crew wasn't what Siggy was looking for. So he and management mutually agreed to table the idea until after the season. Meanwhile, the expansion Seattle Sounders, who were going to join the league after the 2008 season, wanted to talk with Siggy. Chris Henderson, a former player of Siggy Schmidt's at UCLA, was the technical director in the Sounders' inaugural season, and he wanted his old coach to come to Seattle. The crew denied a request to contact Siggy during the regular season by Seattle, as they were permitted to do. But immediately after MLS Cup, some questioned why Siggy didn't want to sign his extension with the crew. The uncertainty surrounding Siggy Schmidt added another wrinkle to the decisions that had to be made for the expansion draft. And some of those discussions had to happen while the party celebrating the historic victory in MLS Cup was still going on. And then that night uh, at the hotel, at the team hotel, we had a, you know, just a party, you know, for the players and their families and, and staff. And, and uh, at the same time, you've got, you know, Clark Hunt and Mark McCullers and Brian Bliss. Like they're, they're, they're like off, I think they went off to like the kitchen or something. Their list, the expansion draft, I think was due the next morning or the morning after. So here's like the party celebrating and they got to talk about like, okay, do we protect this player and expose this player? Or do we, you know, they, I mean, I, I mean, I'm sure they talked about it, you know, it wasn't like they were just like, all right, it's Sunday night. What do we do? You know, I don't think it was like that, but you know, I'm, I'm sure they had a general idea, but you know, there were probably some final decisions that needed to be made that, you know, could have gone one way or the other, or before you even get back to Columbus, you've got to start telling people like, we value everything you've done, but just so you know, like, you know we're going to be exposing you in the expansion draft. MLS Cups on Sunday, you know, Thanksgiving's that coming Thursday. So not only is it like just happening immediately after MLS Cup, but it's also like leading up to things. I just remember being so frustrated thinking that I just wish like this could have waited another week. Like let the players who win MLS Cup enjoy it for a week. They haven't even had a chance to come back and you know, have their little airport celebration and things like that, you know? And you've already got to have these discussions with people about like, oh, you're protected, you're exposed. We hope they don't take you, you know, you're, you're great. But this is very frustrating that it was just immediate. It was so immediate. We'll explore some of the tough decisions that were made after the break. Columbus Crew General Manager Mark McCullers had a lot of difficult decisions to make, and he would be doing it without the coach that just won an MLS Cup for him, Siggy Schmid. But despite the uncertainty about his head coach, Mark McCullers did have some help. Brian Bliss, who we haven't talked about here, but Brian coming on as technical director was a huge help. Brian Bliss had plenty of experience in Columbus and MLS. In 1996, Bliss had been one of the 11 men to step on the field for the crew's inaugural game. He stayed in Columbus for a year and a half and eventually got traded to the Metro Stars in 1997. Bliss was also no stranger to making history having been a part of the 1990 U.S. men's national team that made it to the World Cup for the first time in 40 years. After he retired from playing in 1999, Bliss got into the world of coaching. He eventually ended up as an assistant with Kansas City and took over as interim coach in 2006. Bliss would remain in that position until November of 2006, when Kurt Anolfo took over. In January of 2008, Bliss accepted the position of technical director with the crew. 
And in November of 2008, he was part of the brain trust that was deciding which players to leave unprotected in the upcoming MLS expansion draft. And I remember after the game down on the field and I was talking to Brad Evans and, and you know, he's like, oh, you know, this is great. Like, you know, hopefully it's, it's the first of many. And I remember just kind of getting a little lump in my throat because that weekend I had already kind of mentally done the the math of who they were likely to protect and expose and, you know, so on and so forth. To, to my mind, like Brad Evans was likely the, the player the crew would lose in the expansion draft. Being down on the field and hearing him say, like, oh, you know, hopefully this is the first of many. You know, I, I remember, I mean, it hit me, like, on the field as we were talking. I kind of got, like, got the little lumber and I was like, yeah, probably not going to happen. In 2008, teams were allowed to protect 11 players. The crew chose Guillermo Barro Scalotto, Frankie Haydick, Chad Marshall, Brian Carroll, Alejandro Moreno, Gino Padula, Robbie Rogers, Danny O'Rourke, and William Hesmer. That's nine starters. They also opted to protect Andy Iroh and Emmanuel Ekpo, two good young players who didn't usually start but were key contributors. Conspicuously left off the list were two guys, Eddie Gavin and Brad Evans. Both of them were versatile midfielders and starters for an MLS Cup winner. But Eddie Gavin's salary in 2008 was $165,000. It doesn't sound like much in the world of pro sports, but in those days, that was a fairly high MLS salary. By comparison, Brad Evans made $33,000 in 2008. That was a figure that was certainly on the low end of salaries in MLS, but it was also a salary that was all too common for professional athletes playing the world's biggest game in the world's biggest sports culture. And if you're wondering how we know all these players' salaries, given the league rarely, if ever, acknowledges the terms of their agreements with the players, well, that's because the MLS Players Union regularly publishes these salaries, in part to salary shame MLS, and to make the case in the public eye that they should be getting better wages. Brad Evans could have been making more working in a call center than playing in MLS in 2008 as a starter on a championship-level team, which is astounding. Regardless, that low salary number coupled with his breakout season appealed to the Sounders. Crew defender Danny O'Rourke says the news wasn't a complete shock. Then we saw the, the, for the protected list and that Brad wasn't protected and at such a low cap number, it was obvious that, you know, um, Brad was going to be the one going. So, it, you know, as, as happy as you were to, to win, the, uh, the business side of the MLS kind of hit you fast, and it, and it did with us. The following morning, full-blown, because we had to tell the players that we're not being protected in the expansion draft. So we had to sit down with guys like Brad Evans and say, we love what you did, but we're not going to be able to protect you in this expansion draft. And it was brutal. I mean, it really was. There was there was really little time to to reflect and relax and, and really in, enjoy. And then sure enough, you know, he, he was the, the player that got picked and I mean, it worked out for him. I mean, he had a long run in Seattle and a you know, long, successful career there and U.S. national team and, and, the, and the whole bit. As the celebration continued, crew beat writer for the Columbus Dispatch, Sean Mitchell, encountered an odd situation as he arrived at the postgame festivities. I mean, I was at the Home Depot Center, you know, later than everybody else. That's such as the wife of a, of a sports writer. And, you know, the party's in full swing. I was staying at that, that hotel where the team was, where the party was. And uh, I pulled into the parking garage, and I see uh, Robert Marzija at the time was Marzija's top assistant coach. And he's in the parking garage by himself, and he's kind of 
pacing around and and just kind of looks forlorn a little bit. And I, you know, I parked the car and Bobby, what what are you doing out here, man? You know, there's a party going on there. Why is she not enjoying herself? And he just kind of shrugged and said, "Oh no, I'm I'm fine. I'm just thinking, you know." And and uh, that's kind of odd. And uh, so I, I, you know, put my stuff away, went inside, and some colleagues were, were, were down and around having a beer or two, and fans are there, players and everybody. And Ziggy, I remember Ziggy was kind of off to the side at a table, and I just went over to chat or whatever, and uh, that's when he, he said, hey, I just, you know, kind of want to let you guys know, I think my gay race was there with me, that I may not be coming back or something to that effect, and that was sort of... Uh, a shock. He didn't say out and out, I'm gone or I'm not coming, but I, you know, just want to let you guys know that, you know, I, I might not be around uh, much longer, something to that effect. And then that's when I first first knew. And uh, and then from there, over the next couple of days, you really got, you know, the story started to develop. So the cup was a Sunday, I believe. It was the afternoon, and then, you know, we had a, a team celebration that night, and then we all, you know, we all went out and celebrated afterwards. So it was a, it was a long night, and we had a fairly delayed um, the departure the next day and we just remember getting on the bus and that's when um, you know Ziggy came on the bus and said he wasn't coming back with us and then the, the rumors started flying we knew Seattle was coming in we knew, I, you know and you know, we didn't want to take any, anything away from Ziggy it helps to win a title but uh, we knew his wife didn't really enjoy Columbus so she was back in LA and uh, we never hold anything against him but it was bittersweet starting the next day Seattle was the first where people kind of took a step back and said, whoa, you know, this is this is what the league should be. And I think Ziggy had a pretty good sense that, that that was what was going to happen in that market. You know, you had the Seahawks folks and Paul Allen and, and a lot of uh, savvy sports people. So I think that was pretty attractive to, to get in on the ground floor of a franchise like that and to be back on the West Coast, closer to his family. Um you know, I, I think it was pretty appealing. And, I, you know, as bizarre as it is, you just win a championship and then you want to move on to something else. Um, you know, for him, it, was, it wasn't that bizarre. Perhaps it was the lowball offer from the crew. Or maybe Siggy liked the idea of starting something new on the West Coast. Maybe it was all of that and more. Whatever the case, Siggy Schmidt decided to take the Sounders offer and would be named their head coach on December 16th of 2008. One additional motivation for Siggy to head west seemed to be his brother, Roland, who lived in the Seattle area. At Siggy's introductory press conference, he became emotional when speaking about Roland, whom Siggy had coached at UCLA, saying, It helps me certainly to be close to my brother. We've been apart for a long time. As you can tell, I'm an emotional guy. For me, I've had some great experiences in this sport, and I'd never trade any of the past experiences from what I'm about to encounter. It means a lot to me. Back in the Columbus camp, the crew brass were not happy that Siggy took the Sounders gig, obviously. Some in the front office believed he was contacted by Seattle before his contract ran out, which led them to accuse the Sounders of tampering. MLS found that Seattle did not tamper with Siggy Schmid. However, even though he was out of contract, MLS also required Seattle to financially compensate the crew for the loss of their head coach. So make of that what you will. Meanwhile, the crew returned back to Columbus, minus Siggy Schmidt, and fans gathered at John Glenn International Airport in anticipation of seeing their conquering heroes. 
Yeah, I think that's again one of those seminal moments in organization history. You have those images. You have Mayor Coleman uh, coming down the escalator with the with the trophy. Um, so um, I was thrilled. I mean, there's 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 nothing like that. And and look, I don't I don't want to you know, people to think that um, you know that that there was not any uh, celebration. Uh, there, there was, but as you pointed out, there was other you know matters at, at hand that. You know, just um, uh, yeah, had to be had to be addressed. Fans were able to hold the trophy, take pictures with it, and shower the players with love. It was one of many scenes where the team would be able to meet the fans and show off their new hardware. One of those opportunities occurred at the Ohio State House. I remember it cold and, and spitting snow. Um, I remember. Uh, Governor Strickland, you know, just being tremendously supportive and welcoming, you know, into the state house uh, for the entire organization. And yeah, it, it was it was cold, but it was just a, I mean, it was a big group hug, is what it was. So everybody stayed warm, you know, by by huddling and and, and being there together and, and celebrating this accomplishment. You know, we, we talk about you know club and community. That's what it's all about. To me, it's I still. You know what what sports teams and what sports facilities and what our organizations mean to the communities that they're in uh, is 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 what I was feeding off of, and so to see that all come together was uh, was very special. While all of these celebrations were great, I always wondered why the crew never had a parade. So I asked Mark McCullers, did they ever discuss having a parade for the crew? Absolutely. There was there was definitely a discussion. Um, and I'm a very, very superstitious person. So, you know, I, I, I didn't want to have a conversation before the MLS Cup about those sorts of things. I had other people having those conversations uh, about it, but I wouldn't. Uh, so, yeah, we did talk about a parade. Uh, but I think what we uh, ended up doing um, was appropriate, uh, you know, again, for you know, for, for our fans and for the opportunity to, you know, to actually be part of it as opposed to be a bystander on the side of the road, you know, watching a parade go by. They're part of the celebration at the State House. So I, I was happy with the way it turned out. In 2009, the crew were able to do something that few MLS teams had ever done at the time, visit the White House and meet the president. Dave Stephanie, the PR guru for the crew, described setting that trip up and what the day was like. Yeah, and there really, there wasn't much precedent for MLS Cup champions going to the White House uh, prior to that. However, the previous two years, Houston had, had gone, uh, kind of cracked the code and gone back to back. So we certainly wanted to make sure that continued. The potential wrinkle was that there had been an election, of course, in, in November of 08. So we were dealing with a new administration, a change of administrations, uh, which wouldn't occur until the end of January of, of 09 but got right to work on trying to you know, let them know who we were and, and that we'd be happy to accept an invitation if, uh, if one were, uh, were to be forthcoming. And you know, once, once they started getting the appropriate people in, in place and staffed up, started to move in that direction. But it was really, it wasn't until two weeks before, it was, I think it was two weeks to the day that we officially received uh, the invitation and, and the date that would work for them. We didn't play DC that year until October second to last game of the season so it wasn't ideal to wait until we went there which typically would be the way teams would try to, to try to handle that but it turned out that July 13th was the day that worked for them and also as it turned out was the first day of now Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor's 
uh, Senate confirmation hearing. So it made, uh, you know, a little, a little bit more memorable uh, from that standpoint as well. That did keep us from a quick uh, meet and greet with President Obama that had been on the schedule, but he had media responsibilities. Uh, that he had to attend to around the Senate uh, confirmation hearings, but it was incredible, incredible uh, experience there. Private tours, you know, followed by the recognition out in the out in the Rose Garden. Hello, everybody. Please have a seat. Well, welcome to the White House, and congratulations to the Columbus crew on winning your first MLS Cup. Give them a big round of applause. It's clear that soccer in America is on the rise, and MLS is a big part of that. I want to congratulate Chad Marshall on being named Defender of the Year, uh, Guillermo Barros uh, Chiloto for winning the MVP award and assisting in all three goals in the championship game. And finally, I want to salute uh, these guys for donating so much time and energy to the Columbus community, and we thank them for participating in our United We Serve Summer of Service. Congratulations again for the incredible championship season, and good luck next year, and I have to say that that's a big trophy. So uh, give them a big round of applause, everybody. Thank you. Thank you very much. We had brought some youth players from Columbus as well, and so he, he referenced them. That was a cool component of our, of our visit, as was a uh, clinic that we did with the MLS Works group. Yeah, we gave him the ball. Yeah, probably Clark Hunt gave him the ball. He brought it back with him personally up the stairs, shook hands with, with a lot of, a lot of uh, the guys on the way up the stairs. I turned left uh, to head back into the building and he was walking towards uh, a White House pool photographer. And I'm sure that that wasn't lost on him, even being only six months into term, but uh, that he decided to kind of throw the ball up into the air and, and head it back to himself. And the photographer got a great shot of him uh, uh, with the ball just above his head and the, the crew logo perfectly visible, ran in uh, a number of publications. I know uh, my counterpart with the Red Bulls sent it to me in, uh, in the New York Post. The crew were in the midst of an unprecedented streak at the time of their White House visit. Between June 28th of 2008 and September 29th of 2009, the black and gold were undefeated at home, a span of 22 games. It was the longest home unbeaten streak in MLS history at the time. And that strong home field advantage once again helped Columbus win the Supporters' Shield in 2009. Robert Varzija, the former crew player, assistant coach, and one-time interim head coach of the team back in 2005, was brought in to take over for Siggy Schmid. And his team was not missing a beat, it appeared. That is, until they got to the playoffs. Here's Neil Sika, the play-by-play -play voice of the Columbus crew. I mean, the thing was, I felt pretty good about their chances in 2009 but you had this this groundswell of what Real Salt Lake was becoming you know everyone's gonna always point to the strategy in that first leg I thought they were still in pretty good position uh, to make a deep run as the team with the best record the crew were matched up with Real Salt Lake the team with the worst record of the eight playoff teams in 2009 Robert Varzija made the questionable decision to sit two of his best players in the opening game of the two-legged series I love Robert, and I got to know him well, and he became a good friend. But you know, I think Bobby, as a coach, his legacy will always be known as the guy who put Scalotto on the bench in the first leg of that Salt Lake game. And Moreno sat too. Let's not forget that. Renteria and Linhart started that game in the first leg. Now, to his credit, 
they might not have had the the gusto going forward with him on the field, but they were still scoreless. You know, that was the plan to get out of there without allowing a goal and to get back to Columbus. Uh, and Robbie Finley ruined that with the goal, I think, in the last three or four minutes of the of the first leg. And then Scoloto coming onto the field and starting that second leg and scoring twice in the first thirty minutes. It just it just goes to show you how, how masterful a player he was and even dealing with the, the psychology behind uh, having to sit. Well, this goes back to that to when I saw Robert in the parking garage. Now that was the reason Robert was out there pacing was that Ziggy had told him, you know, hey, I'm not coming back. All signs point to you being the next head coach of this team. And, and uh, you know, I think it was already weighing heavily on Robert's mind that, you know, that responsibility and that that he's now going to be the, the guy. And this is his team now. And that's that was Robert's personality. And he just... Overthinking, I think, a lot of times was was uh, part. And uh, don't get me wrong, I, Robert was a very good coach. I mean, he, you know, he, he did some great things as a head coach in MLS, but he overthought things sometimes, and uh, and and there was always that sense of, of worry. I, I, Robert, one thing Robert never did when he was head coach was relax. I mean, the guy, I think he's a, he's one of these warrior guys by nature, and uh, that overthinking thing, I, I think. I don't know if it was, yeah, I don't think it was spite or anything that could cause him to bench Scalotto or to have that sort of prickly relationship with him in general. I just think he overthought it. It's like benching Babe Ruth for a World Series game. I mean, it really is. You just you just don't do it, and you you, you think what are you what's going on here? Now Robert survived it. He went on to have more success as a head coach of the Columbus Crew, but it was uh, yeah, it was certainly a head scratcher. So despite having the best record in the league, the crew were out after the first round. More importantly, they were no longer the defending MLS Cup champions. Real Salt Lake went on to win MLS Cup in 2009, but that fact brought little solace to the crew faithful. Danny O'Rourke says he knows who to blame for the team not getting the job done in 2009, or at least one of his teammates did. Chad blames me because, you know, I was always kind of like a Swiss Army knife and could play anywhere. And when, when Bobby came on to coach, you know, Bobby and I had a really good understanding that, you know, I, was, I told him, like, flat out, wherever you need me, whatever position, just let me know and I'll play that. Um, and so sometimes I would find out literally 45 minutes before, before the match, you know, that's the position I'm playing, whether it's left or right back or in the midfield or, in, you know, next to Chad in the back. Um, but I really just enjoyed the center midfield a little bit. And with Brad leaving, there was you know, always a, uh, a spot there, especially with, you know, some injuries we had in the midfield. So I always enjoyed playing there, and I would tell, tell Bobby that. So um, when I would play there and not play alongside him every game, um, he said it's my fault that we didn't win it. So if that makes Chad happy, if it makes a big guy happy, I'll shoulder that blame. It's a funny ongoing joke. Well, more funny to him going forward. Right. It's never funny to the guy who the joke is being made about. So I would assume that's not right. as funny to you. Exactly. After the loss to RSL, Robert Varzija went on to coach the crew for four more seasons. But that group of players was really never the same after that two-year run between 2008 and 2009. Alejandro Moreno was selected by the Philadelphia Union in the 2009 expansion draft. Probably the final nail in the coffin of that era of crew history happened after the 2010 season. Guillermo Barros Scalotto, Frankie Haydick, Gino Padula, and Duncan Outen 
had their options declined at the end of that season, and Brian Carroll was traded to Philadelphia. The crew began to rebuild with a new, younger core. Some fans were mad, and understandably so, that some of the legends of a championship-winning team were unceremoniously dumped in favor of a new start. It would also be fair to mention here that when those players were cut, Guillermo was 37 years old, Frankie was 36, Gino was 34, and Duncan 33. Maybe there could have been a more graceful way to handle the end of that era, but as we know, no professional sports team lasts forever. However, the bonds of teammates can last a lifetime. Memories are permanent, as long as people keep remembering them. And of course, as we recently saw with Save the Crew, the belief that Columbus and the crew belong together is no longer a temporary thought. That belief is etched into the fabric of this community. Gino Padula felt the friendship that team developed was a key to the success in 2008. They were friends. When you play with friends, it's much easier. We didn't have big names. We play against LA, you had David Beckham, Donovan, top players, they spent a lot of money. Um, we didn't have many names. That was the group of players I most enjoyed to play in soccer because we were humble and we played for each other. And when you had that connection between each one, and also with the fans, the feeling that the team leave everything on the field. But apart from that, we play very good soccer. We play nice soccer. We, we play very pretty. We, we try to dominate every game. That was unbelievable. This is something good because I miss it. Looking back, you know, and my daughter's Olive, she's a bit young now, she's three and a half, but I, you know, I think when she gets to an age where she can understand better and stuff, she wants to know what daddy did and what dad, why does daddy watch soccer all the time? You know, I want to watch my cartoons. Why does daddy do this? Well, you know, daddy used to do that. Do you, do you want to do that when you get older? And then she'll go get a ball and start kicking it in front of the TV so I don't get to watch soccer and I kick a ball with it, you know, which is awesome. And I think a lot of came out that we talked about today already because we start talking about it, you know, and you can see me grinning from ear to ear. I'm not, I am, mate, I'm buzzing right now. It's like I feel that adrenaline shot right now because you're bringing up so many good memories by talking about this and, and so much love for the different guys. When I started out making this podcast, I thought I might be making a tribute to a franchise that no longer existed. No one knew if the crew would exist beyond 2018. But thanks to all the members of the Save the Crew movement, the Haslam, the Edwards families, and many other leaders in Columbus, the Columbus crew lives on. The community that developed around the crew is strong, dynamic, and most importantly, growing. But without the contributions of all of the crew players over the years, grinding away over long MLS seasons, Save the Crew might not have ever happened. That's because those players created memories. They created that bond with the fans. And they inspired the community who stood up to defend their team. Everyone did what they needed to, the way they knew how to, to save the crew. Or as Alejandro Moreno was fond of saying in 2008, do what you do. And now, as we finish our look back on the 2008 season, one phrase rings as true as it ever has for fans of the Columbus crew.
Well, thank you very much for listening to this entire series. I can't believe it's over. You've all been so great to listen to this project. I cannot thank you enough for the reviews, the kind words, and most of all, for giving me a chance to tell this story. Thank you for listening. I want to once again thank my wife, Melissa, for all her help and for pushing me to do this project. She's been a great support for me, so thanks, honey. Todd Markowitz and Cody Welling, I talk about them every week over here at 97.1 The Fan. Thanks for letting me figure out how to do one of these types of podcasts and giving me the room to work there. To the amazing guests, uh, let's start with Frankie Haydick. I didn't think we were going to get him on this podcast, and then I literally ran into him out in public. We were walking around. I happened to see him. Uh, we caught up. We talked a little bit, and he said he was excited about being a part of the project. So then he came on, and he actually reminded me of the plane ride from Toronto, which I had completely forgotten about. So big thanks to Frankie for sharing this story and sharing his perspective. Same goes for Duncan Outen. He was the first guy I interviewed way back when, and I hadn't spoken to him in years. When I called him up out of the blue, it was like we'd just seen each other the week before. So thanks to Dunks for being class, both those guys. And same for the rest of the guests we had. Gino Padula, Danny O'Rourke, Steve Sirk, I think sat with me for like six hours. Just an incredible human and writer. Uh, Mark McCullers gave me a bunch of time. Patrick Golden did like a two-hour interview. Sean Mitchell, the nomad journalist living the dream. I talked to John Clem and Grant Thurman, Dave Stephanie. Dave was essentially my fact checker on this podcast. He listened to a rough cut of the first episode and had like four pages of notes. It was astounding. So I am so indebted to him, basically double checking every episode. And yes, Dave, I know it wasn't four pages. It was more like one and a half. Dave is a bit of a stickler for details, but that's why he was good at this. And I seriously could not have done this podcast without him. Neil Sika also deserves a special shout out for preserving the radio calls of the 08 playoffs and MLS Cup and giving his insights as well. Thanks to him for sharing and to the crew and ESPN for permission to use additional audio all throughout this podcast. John Zadar, I've thanked quite a bit, but I'll thank him again because he took some of these very ethereal ideas that we had and transformed them into very tangible artwork. He also helped with coming up with the name for this podcast. So yeah, John's a great dude. Follow him at the Zadar on Twitter if you'd like to. Greg Armstrong, our engineer at the radio station, and Brandon Beam helped me get this thing on all the podcast apps, so thanks to them for that. And finally, a friend texted me after listening to a few of these episodes and said, hey, why don't you think the other people who are working on this, the writers, the producers, the editors, like they do on other podcasts? So just for one time for the sake of clarity, and so you won't think I'm being like a selfish jerk, the Cup Podcast was written, produced, edited, and voiced by me. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it.